Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. So we are in the uh, final week of this series uh, where, we ha- where we've been talking all about our need to seek the heart of God, like we want to align our heart uh, with God's heart, where we have been challenged in this series to put his treasure where his heart is, uh, because everything we have belongs to God and comes from God. And as we saw last week, the most significant question we can ever ponder is this, will I be found faithful? Will I be found faithful? And so as we kick off this sermon, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. And of course, I'm not talking about my mustache, though it's probably obvious to all of you, at least in the first two rows, Uh, right? The rest of you just think there's a shadow there, sort of is. But the elephant in the room are these envelopes, these pledge envelopes for the Until Everyone Knows Stewardship Campaign. This, remember, as we talked about it over the last few weeks, as you've read about it in your material and in messages I've sent out, this is a 36-month pledge that also has a first fruits offering taken up next week. That is for the uh, facility that we're building, our new home for ministry, just about two miles north of here. And uh, you may even notice this morning that the Church Center app uh, and our website already has like a pull-down tab for this Until Everyone Knows campaign. We've talked about it because we're asking God that he would provide $4.2 million, which is a bunch for us to build this new building uh, with the funds that we still have and limiting our debt to just borrowing enough that we know that we can uh, believe that we can manage. And so questions, as I've talked with lots of people about this, questions that have come up is like on an individual, like what if, like what if, I don't give anything. And can I just say, if you have gone through the process of prayer, like if you kind of followed up your commitment that you turned in and you and your spouse or you and your family or you on an individual level have spent the last 28 days in prayer, uh, seeking the Lord, reading the scriptures, and God has led you not to give, then you would be disobedient to try to overrule God and give. And we know that there are people within our church that God has ignited a greater desire than they have the ability, right? They have this desire to give that God has worked into their heart through this process of prayer, but they just don't have the ability to give. And if God is leading you that way, then there's a place on this envelope for you to say, God's not leading me to give at that time. And I will promise you, we will celebrate the people who turn in this envelope, having gone through the process and God led them not to give, we will celebrate that like the person who commits $100,000. Because we want to unite our hearts with the heart of God. Some of you, maybe you've prayed through this and the thing God is telling you is that you are, you've become a slave to debt, which is always the case. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. And so you need to deal with that. Others, God has told you, you need to start tithing for the very first time. And so you can check that and turn in your envelope. But whatever God is leading you to do, we'd love to know about it and pray for you and celebrate it. And so turn that in. Now, on the corporate side of things, the what if I hear is, what if God doesn't provide $4.2 million? Like, what if he provides $2.2 million? 
Well, guys, the answer is that we will build accordingly. Like we will, we will shrink the building. We'll change some of the things on it because we're not going to go uh, in debt in a way that would enslave us as a church. We want to be wise and we want to be good stewards, just like we're calling you to be good stewards. What if God provides 5.2 million, 6.2 million? Then we'll have no debt at all as a church. <laughs> And we'll be able to accelerate our plans to increase our percentage of giving to global outreach and to church planting and to other things God is leading us to do as a church. And so here's our vision. As a church and as an association of churches now that's about 40 strong in greater Austin, uh, we want to give every man, woman, and child in Hutto and Taylor and Georgetown in Round Rock and Pflugerville, all, all over Greater Austin, we want to give them repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel because they're hearing it from our lips. And so that's our vision. And this is our hope in this campaign. And this is our hope in planting a church and our hope in reaching our community. We just want to be found faithful, like individually and corporately. And so understand, guys, there is, no, there is no such thing as a purely financial decision because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our money decisions are always worship decisions. And so my question this morning is, in regards to giving, are you a cheerful giver? It says in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 9, 7, each of you should give what he has decided to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not because you felt manipulated or your arm was twisted. Not because everyone was doing it and you felt bad if you didn't. Right? Each of you should give what he has decided to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So understand, guys, there's no way you should look at this one verse and think that this is an easy out of giving. Like Paul was saying right here, right? Like if I don't, if I'm not happy about it, then I shouldn't give because I'm not a cheerful giver. I'm kind of reluctant. I feel like my arm's twisted and so I shouldn't give. Uh, you know, I can just spend it on myself. Well, that's like saying, you know what? I don't feel like I love my wife today. I think I'll treat her like garbage. Right? I mean, if you don't feel it, then you don't have to act, right? You don't have to act in accordance with feelings that you don't have. Therefore, you don't have to, you can mistreat your spouse if you're not feeling in love. The truth is, guys, that often the joy of giving comes either during or after the process of giving. I mean, there are, there are times when I hover that check over the offering plate or my finger on that button and there's fear and there's reluctance and then I drop it or I push the button and there's, there's joy because I've let go of it. It was burning my hands and now it's gone. Are you a cheerful giver? And if not, what is the main obstacle for you being a cheerful giver? Is it greed? Is it materialism? Is it, a, is, is it a lack of vision of what God wants you to do as a Christian? Is it a lack of resources? Like, can you pinpoint what the core issue is in your own heart? 
What's the idol that you're battling with? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller unpacks a concept he calls deep idols. He writes, counterfeit gods come in clusters, making the idolatry structure of the heart complex. There are deep idols within our heart beneath the more concrete and visible surface idols that we serve. Like, I think we we get this concept. We all understand that what he's saying is what appears to be the driving force of someone's behavior may simply be a surface idol that's masking a much deeper idol. Like, we get this because we all know the bully or the self-promoter or the harsh critic who is really just insecure, right? Like they're putting others down to make themselves feel like more important. Like on the surface, they just seem like a jerk. Like on the surface, like we think they're just so full of themselves, but in reality, right down deep, they really just crave approval. They crave acceptance. They crave security. They crave control. These deep idols that they have are driven by those emotions, and our deep idols are always driven by emotions. In fact, I would say that they're always driven by one specific emotion. It's the emotion of fear. Like the main obstacle to cheerful giving is fear. Like fear drives us to seek these false idols to satisfy this growing sense of insignificance or insecurity or weakness. And so, once again, are you a cheerful giver? Like, what if God called you to give beyond your comfort level this morning as part of this stewardship campaign? Like, how would you feel about that? Would you be afraid? As you hold the envelope above the basket, would you be tempted just to pull it back? Not sign it, make it anonymous, pull it out, change the amount, lower it. Guys, we all battle it. I I do. We want to be generous, but then the fear kicks in. What if I lose my job? What What if I get sick and I have all kinds of medical bills? What if I can't provide for my family? What if the economy is such a such a downturn in the economy that mean I have to sell things? I need to divest. What if, what if, what if? And so the question for all of us this morning is, are you a cheerful giver or are you a fearful giver? Admittedly, I'm a little bit of both. And Jesus understands that tension. In fact, he addresses it in Luke chapter 12. I hope you turn there, uh, beginning in verse 13. Jesus is teaching the crowds and then somebody speaks up and interrupts him and says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to invite to, to divide the inheritance with me. Right? It's kind of embarrassing because obviously his big brother is right there with him, or Jesus wouldn't be able to tell him to divide the inheritance with him. And so Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, creator of all things, ruler of the universe, Messiah, Savior, uh, could you just tell my brother to give me some stuff to do right by me, to be fair. And so Jesus replies to this individual man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. And then in verse 15, it says, but then he said to them, 
So instead of focusing on just one individual, he now teaches a lesson for the crowd as a whole. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, why does Jesus bring up greed when someone is only asking for their fair share? Because he knows something that the person asking the question doesn't know. He sees an issue that that person doesn't see because greed is more easily identified in others than in ourselves. Like Jesus could have asked the man, hey, what's more important to you? Your relationship with your big brother or getting your fair share? I mean, after all, the guy didn't ask him, hey, Jesus, uh, please help me in my relationship with my brother. Money has gotten in the way. The relationship wasn't the priority to him. The stuff was the priority to him. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That word translated greed is really two words in the original language, meaning more and to have, which is exactly what greed is. It's an insatiable desire, an unsatisfiable desire for more. And Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of greed because with our material appetites, our eyes are always bigger than our stomach, right? Our expectation always exceeds our experience because we've never been fully or finally satisfied. We've never had the meal to end all meals or the vacation to end all vacations. We've never owned the car that ends all cars. We always want more. We always want to upgrade. We always want something better, newer, faster, shinier. And he told them this parable, once again speaking to the crowd, the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, and it's notice, notice, noticeable in this passage that he only thinks to himself and talks to himself. This rich and blessed farmer never prays and he never seeks wise counsel. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Like I already have more than enough. Now I've gained more. What do I do with it? And that's the question that Jesus wants this audience to answer. If I have enough and I get more than I need, what do I do with it? Like if I have enough that meets all of my deeds, what do I do with the extra? And there are two ways to answer that question. And the one you pick reveals your heart. And it also determines the condition of your heart. Verse 18, then he, the farmer said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Me, me, me. Greed says that I should keep my abundance and spend it on myself. Greed said, hey, you know what? Sounds like a good time to upgrade. Sounds like a good time to move up. Like he increases his capacity. His barns are gone. Now there are bigger barns. He increases his self-confidence. Man, I have everything I'll need for years and years to come. And he increases his appetite. Let's eat and drink and be merry. 
But we all know that feeding an appetite only makes it grow. Right? We get bigger and we get hungrier. And so God responds to him, but God said to him, the God he never called on, the God whose advice he never sought, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Your life does not consist in an abundance of your possessions. I know you've probably seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, but that's just not true. If you die with the most toys, somebody else is going to get your toys. That's just the way it works. So when you have an inflow of cash that exceeds the outflow of cash, what do people typically do with the extra? They match it. I mean, it's time for an upgrade. They buy more. They raise their standard of living instead of their standard of giving. It either gets consumed by them right now or it gets saved, stored away so they can consume it themselves later. And so you may say, this sermon isn't for me because I've never had extra. If you have cable, you have extra. If you have a streaming service, you have extra. If you went to a movie this week, you have extra. If you went to Starbucks this week, you have extra. If you went to went on a date this past month, you have extra. Like I said last week, we are the richest, we have the richest poor people in our nation in the entire world. Like, have you ever traded something that worked perfectly fine for something else just like it that was just newer? In fact, maybe you sold it on Craigslist and it worked so well that somebody said, I will buy that. That's extra, right? That, that stuff that goes in your sink in that garbage disposal, that's not garbage, is it? No, it's extra food from your plate. Like our sinks eat better than a bunch of the people in the world. It's called extra. And I want you to hear this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having extra. Who gave you your extra? God did richly for you to enjoy. Like God is the one who blessed you with the extra. However, what you do with the extra money that God has provided is an indication of whom you belong to, what's in your heart, and whether or not you believe that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. And so at the end of this parable, Jesus tacks on a moral it's like he steps out of the parable to address the audience directly. And he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Like this is how it will be for anyone who thinks that everything that comes their way is for their own consumption and forgets to be rich toward God. Now at this point, in this sermon, you should be thinking, okay, but what does this have to do with fear? Well, Jesus tells us as he dives into the deep idols of our heart. It says in verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, remember he started talking with a young man and then he started talking to the crowd, then he taught a parable and now he addresses directly those who are believers who want to follow him. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not what? 
I mean, do not be greedy. Like, is that the lesson from the parable? Do not build barns. Barns are bad. Like, if that guy had not build, built barns, he'd be great. Like, do not, like, shop online. Do not upgrade. Stay away from Starbucks. Like, is that the solution? No, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. You see, I think Jesus is addressing what drives the greed in our hearts. I think he's exposing the deeper idol in each one of us. And so here's the question to think about financially. What are you afraid of? Like as we think about this series and we think about bringing a pledge to the church, like financially, what are you afraid of? The downturn of the economy, the results of the election, what does that mean for two years from now? Your job, your health, your kids, your grandkids, the worth of your house either going too high or going too low. Like financially, what are you afraid of? It's fear of the unknown, right? It's fear of the future, fear maybe of failure, fear of not having enough. I mean, especially, I mean, you think about it, that the whole concept of generosity is in direct conflict with the concept of self-preservation. Like nobody else is going to provide for me. I have to provide for me. Like that's the big fear that we all face, right? That I have to look out for myself because, I mean, after all, no one else is going to look out after Bobby. Like nobody else in our church goes to bed, lays their head on the pillow at night and thinks, I wonder how Bobby's doing. I wonder if he's able to pay his mortgage. wonder if he's well fed. I mean, he looks like he is, but who knows, right? I I wonder if he's able to meet all of his obligations. I mean, you don't go to bed thinking about Bobby. Now, I go to bed thinking about Bobby every single night. But you don't. You go to bed thinking about you and what you have and your needs. Because you think, and we all think, no one else in all of the universe is going to bed thinking about me. No one else in all of the universe is going to make sure that I have enough. What a lonely place that is. And so Jesus addresses that mindset and he says this. Here's the solution to all of our financial fears. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Christians, According to Jesus, your worry 
is irrational. Because life is more than food and clothing. Because God cares for His children and is committed to provide for them. And because worry doesn't help, it changes nothing. It can't change the future. It only ruins the present. Now by by necessity, understand, fearful people are stingy people. They have to be. Because no one else is going to look out for them but them. That's just how the world works. And so Jesus offers an alternative in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Guys, hear those tender words from your Savior. Do not worry. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So the real question is, who is better able to meet your needs? You or your Father? Who is better to look out for your best interests? You or a Heavenly Father who's committed to do that very thing? Like what if? Like what would happen to your fear if you truly believe that the same God who controls all the resources of the entire universe was watching out for you, like carefully channeling the perfect level of provision to meet your every need. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So what do we do with our fear then? Like, where do we go from here? Well, here's the solution. We need to battle our fear with focus. What absorbs your attention? What are you captivated by? What are you always worrying about? <laughs> like worry is just prayer in reverse. Instead of giving this issue to God, I'm just stewing over it. I'm meditating on all the things I lack and all the bad things that could happen. We need to battle our fears with focus. Randy Alcorn writes, gaze upon Christ long enough and you will become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. So guys, what do we need to do? We need to focus our attention, obsess over the true and better cheerful giver. See, the true cheerful giver of Scripture is not the Apostle Paul. You know, it's not Peter or James. The most incredible cheerful giver you know is not me or one of our elders. Like God Himself, according to Scripture, is the ultimate cheerful giver. Scripture tells us that God is the giver of life. Like you're here right now alive because God gives you every breath. The one you're taking right now has been granted to you from God. And the next one. And the next one. Scripture tells us it identifies God Himself as the giver of strength. The ultimate giver of wisdom. He's the giver of every victory. He's the giver of a peace that surpasses all understanding. In fact, Scripture even says that God is the giver of rest. Like we read in Psalms in the context of people worrying about the city and their safety. 
worrying about their family and their, you know, generations to come, worrying about the house that they have. God says, but he, God, gives sleep to those he loves. So instead of obsessing over every worry in the world, God wants us to place our head on the pillow at night and sleep the sleep of the saved and the satisfied because we have a father watching over us. James 1.17 says that God is the giver of every good thing. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What has God already given you? Everything. Everything you have, everything you are. Like Jesus explains this principle in Matthew 7, 11, as he talks to a crowd of people, a bunch of dads, and asks them, okay, if your son asks you for, I don't know, a fish, are you going to give him a snake? Well, of course not. If he asks you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? Well, of course not. And so Jesus says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your kids, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give good things to those who simply ask Him? Psalm 84, 11 tells us that God is the giver of all favor, all honor, and every good thing. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. God is not withholding from you. And Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5 says that God is the giver of the desires of our heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Him. Trust in Him and He will act. And yet with all of these passages, the, the ultimate verse in, in the Bible about God being the giver is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. God loves and so God gives. Just like we do, moms and dads, to our own kids. Christmas is coming and we get psyched to spend too much money on our kids just to see that look on their face and know that they have delighted in that gift. We love that. That's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, the thing that was most precious to the Father, He gave for us so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. We need to battle our fear with focus. Even now, even as you anticipate in a moment during communion, bringing up this envelope and placing it in this little box. We need to battle our fear with focus. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. And not only do we need to battle fear with focus, we need to battle our fear with faith. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's not just a concept. It's a promise. It's a reality. It's a person. We need to move our the, the, the tr things that we believe from these conceptual things to actual taking hold of them. That's 
our Savior saying that about our Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father that we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where it says, if God is for us, and by the way, the implication is He is. So Christians, God is for you. He couldn't be more for you. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, everyone could be against us. And it wouldn't even matter. Right? Like It wouldn't even matter if everyone in the entire universe, everyone in your entire family, everyone in Hutto, all the demonic hordes and powers in the heavenly places, if they were all aligned against you, but God was for you, you win every single time. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God won't hold back giving Jesus for us, what would he hold back? For our good and for his glory. Like guys, who is better able to look out for your best interests? You are this God. I love what we sang earlier. I will rest my fears where I trust my future. Like if I can trust God, just for me, guys, this is for me and for my envelope. If I can trust God with my eternity, I can trust him for the next 36 months. If I can entrust Christ with my forever and ever and ever, I certainly can entrust my finances to him for these next three years. We need to battle like our fear with focus and battle our fear with faithfulness. We need to take our faith like what we say we believe, what we say we know is true, and we need to put feet to your faith. We need to put his treasure where his heart is. Paul Tripp writes, we need a brand new way of thinking about money, a way that is rooted in the gospel story and its narrative of the lavish grace of God most powerfully pictured in the amazing gift of the Lord Jesus. Battle fear with focus, battle fear with faith, and battle fear with faithfulness. Seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. That's the invitation from Jesus. Hey, let's trade. You concern yourself with my kingdom, and I'll take care of all your stuff. I'll handle all of your worries. Like If you want to really be secure financially, you need to invite God into the realm of your finances as soon as possible. I mean, there's only one place in all of the Bible where God says it's okay to test him. And it's in Malachi chapter 3 where when it comes to giving, God says, test me in this. You bring the gift and test me that I can't multiply it and make sure your needs are met if I can't rebuke the enemy, the devourer, and make sure that you have enough for your family. Randy Alcorn explains this. He says, our giving is a reflexive reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't come out of our altruism or philanthropy. 
that comes out of the transforming work of Christ in us. The grace is the action. Our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. And so as we close this part of the service and ready ourselves for communion and to bring our offering, I'd ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't want this time for you to be rushed. I want it to be prayerful. As we said earlier, like the envelopes are designed so that if you've gone through the process of prayer and God's led you not to give, then we want you to bring that envelope as your commitment to Him that I am committing like to you, God, that you, you've told me what to do and what not to do, and I just want to be obedient to you. Like we want 100% participation of our church family in this. And so normally, as people come for communion, they come individually and get a couple cups for the rest of their family. I would ask this morning for you to go, and instead of coming individually, that you would come as a family that you get your elements of communion, that you would leave your pledge here at the altar in one of these baskets, that you would take time even now as a couple or as a family just to put your heads together and pray and say, God, we pledge this to you. This is our promise to you, God. As I was preparing this morning, I read the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And for the prayer of communion, I thought in light of us bringing our pledge that this opening was so perfect. It reads, Lord, teach me the nature of a sacrament as a seal and a pledge of love that Christ is faithful to make himself a present reality to his own who are guests at his table. Lord, I thank you that uh, we are able to give because you are the giver. Lord, we're able to bring a pledge because you have pledged yourself to us and that this cup is a sign of your pledge speaking to us, preaching to us, singing to us about the body and blood of Jesus. Bless this church this morning. Help us to just hear your words. Fear not, little church, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and come when you're ready. The Apostle Paul writes within the context of giving, in fact, the giving campaign where they're collecting for the needs of the Jerusalem church. He reminds the church of Corinth. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. 
so that by his poverty, you might become rich. We see that symbolized on the night before his betrayal when he took the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In church, this is the blood of Jesus. The blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's worship together. I'm going to ask the elders who are in the service to come forward, like uh, Tom and uh, Jonathan, uh, James, uh, any other elders in here. We want uh, to take God at His Word as we close in prayer and lay hands on uh, the gifts that you have brought, the pledges that you have made, and ask God to do what He promises in His Word. Put Him to the test and see if He cannot pour out more blessings than we try to bring in. Put Him to the test and see if He cannot rebuke the enemy, rebuke the devourer who tries to destroy our crops and who tries to wreck our lives. Let's pray for these uh, offerings. Father, we thank You that we are only able to give because You are the true and perfect and better cheerful giver. That everything we have comes from You and belongs to You. And Lord, I just thank You for these who have come and who have brought these pledges this morning. I thank You for those who You moved in their heart to create a desire to want to give even if they don't have the resources. And so they've brought a pledge that says they want to give, but they just don't have the funds. God, bless them richly with Your provision. And God, for those who brought an offering this morning, a pledge for these next three years, and God, I just pray that You, just like Your Word says, would pour out Your blessing on them in their careers, in material ways, in ways that they know only God has done this, that You would receive all the glory and honor and praise for it. And that God, You would hold back the enemy from them that You would secure their future as they trust in You. Bless them, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you, church.